welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here today to bring you the latest media law headlines. We have a Le Choux judgment, the all-party parliamentary group's report on the police's handling of the Kill the Bill and Sarah Everard protests, Matt Hancock's privacy, and the two young men who accosted Chris Whistie and the label of thugs that's been branched on them, as well as Arlene Foster's substantial damages that have been awarded to her in her libel claim in Northern Ireland. So starting with Le Choux, on Thursday the 1st of July 2021, Mr Justice Nicklin handed down the judgment in Le Choux and Independent Print. In finding for the claimants, Mr Justice Nicklin rejected the defence of public interest under Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013. Listeners will no doubt have heard mention of Le Choux before. This case has been ongoing for seven years and has already gone up to the Supreme Court for a determination on serious harm under Section 1 of the Defamation Act. Put briefly, Mr Le Choux is a French citizen who married an English woman and moved to Dubai. The marriage turned sour very quickly and Mrs Le Choux made a number of allegations of domestic violence against Mr Le Choux to the British press. These allegations were found to be false by Mr Justice Moyston in the divorce proceedings that happened here in the UK in 2017, but the defamatory articles in The Independent and Evening Standard remained accessible, albeit amended with a link to the Moyston judgment at the end. A key feature of the defence was that the articles were reporting rather than adopting the allegations made by Mrs Le Choux. The articles, however, were found to be one-sided and not to contain anything by way of rebuttal in the judgment that was handed down this week. In paragraphs 143 of the judgment, Mr Justice Nicklin notes that reporters have a variety of techniques in their arsenal when reporting on matters of public interest. He says that if a journalist or publisher can demonstrate that she carefully considered the necessity for and proportionality of the harm to reputations of those included in the publication, then the court is likely to accord due weight to that assessment. In this instance, however, the defendant papers failed to show the necessary belief that what they were publishing and the way they were publishing it was in the public interest. Recollections of events seven years ago were understandably minimal and there was a sparsity of contemporaneous documents. Nevertheless, it was clear that the decision to publish all the relevant articles in the manner presented and without comment from Mr Le Show was a mistake. It was not the product of carefully reasoned editorial judgment. In his judgment, Mr Justice Nicklin relies heavily on the press industry's own code of conduct in reaching his conclusion that the defendants failed to believe that the publication of the article was in the public interest. He quotes extensively from the Press Complaints Code, which was the relevant industry code at the time of publication, and its successor, IPSO, as well as the current standards code of the Independent Monitor for the Press, or IMPRESS as it's known. All of these codes, as well as the defendants' own editorial codes of conduct, require journalists to be able to demonstrate fully that, where public interest is invoked, editors and journalists will be able to demonstrate fully that they reasonably believed that the publication would be in the public interest, and how they reached that conclusion, and with whom they had such discussions. Impress even has an entire section on the usefulness of making a contemporaneous note, both to help the journalist in carefully analysing their decisions at the time and recording the rationale behind any behaviour that may be contrary to the code. In 119 of his judgment, Mr Justice Nicklin criticised the, and I quote, 
lax and frankly amateurish approach to the recording of decisions of potentially critical importance by both defendants. He notes that the Section 4 defence depends fundamentally on the subjective belief of journalists at the time of publication. Given the fast-paced nature of the newsroom, it is quite understandable that journalists will forget what they were thinking when writing each and every story, and that makes the need for some sort of record-keeping all the more important. In the same paragraph, Nicklin identifies a number of professions who routinely have to keep records. Doctors, nurses, teachers, police officers, lawyers, surveyors, dentists, accountants, opticians and architects, all of whom may be called on to account for their decisions. There's no reason why journalists should be exempt from the same standards to which we hold other professions. And ultimately, that's the the point of the judgment. Damages were awarded at £120,000 and the appeal from the defendants was initially refused. Whether they go to the Court of Appeal to ask for further appeal uh, and whether that appeal is accepted, only time will tell. I'm going to move on to something a little bit more headline grabbing and that is of course Matt Hancock. We've all seen it. First, the grainy picture of the passionate embrace between Matt Hancock and Gina Colodangelo and the news that the health secretary was cheating on his wife with his aide, another married woman. Then came the moving picture version, which was even more uncomfortable to watch, but we all did. There are obvious privacy implications here, but commentators have made much of the strong public interest justifications in favour of publication in this case including the appointment of Miss Colodangelo to a paid public position, which was supposed to involve independent oversight of the health department, as well as the apparent hypocrisy of Mr Hancock having agreed to the 2020 resignation of Professor Neil Ferguson for breaking social distancing rules, breach of social distancing rules, and the provision of a parliamentary pass to Miss Colodangelo. The issue is something that Tom has discussed in a recent City Law Review blog post, And you focus particularly on the image and the necessity of the image to break the story. Is the image itself the breach of privacy? Um, And is the the photo and the video that uh, is protected by public interest? Uh, I, well, um, the editors at The Sun clearly felt that publication of the photograph was desirable um and if we're charitable i guess we can say the editors probably thought it was necessary um i i think it is entirely justifiable to publish the pictures um and the video footage in these circumstances um because they provide evidence that backs up the written account um Given that there is always a likelihood um, from politicians that any alleged misconduct will be denied, immediately denied, vociferously denied on all possible channels, um, I I, I don't think it's unreasonable or disproportionate, which is the legal test, to publish um, the images that prove um the fact of what occurred which is the matt hancock's matt that matt hancock kissed gina colodangelo in his office um the video footage shows that this was not a momentary peck on the lips between friends which it might otherwise have been painted as 
um, and uh, which could have explained the matter away. No, uh, we can see from that footage, which lasts just over a minute, um, that there is clearly a, a more established um, attachment between the pair of them. Um, so uh, I, I, I think it's uh, I think it's entirely justifiable in the circumstances um, to publish this. Yeah, I disagree. Um, I think uh, whilst it might ultimately be justifiable, I I wouldn't skip certain important steps in the analysis. These are images taken from a camera in his office. Why is there a camera in his office? How has a camera got into his office? Now, that for me is the sort of privacy dimension question here that is that is more troublesome, particularly in light of what we know about uh, this government, what we know about uh, the and the allegations uh, against the police following the uh, Daniel Morgan Independent Panel uh, report. So, how has a camera got into uh, the Minister for Health? How's it got into his office? Would presumably without his knowledge. Well, there was a picture of it. Why is it? Why is there a camera in his office? How many other ministers have cameras in their office? There was a picture of the camera published. I think it was the Daily Mail a few days later. They had a picture of the office and what looks like a perfectly standard CCTV camera, pretty obviously in the middle of the ceiling. And I could then ask how on earth the Daily Mail managed to get a picture of the inside of Matt Hancock's office, but assuming that it is accurate, um, however so the Daily Mail might have gotten it, it demonstrates that the camera is there just as obviously as you'd see a camera in the middle of a train carriage or a, you know, a restaurant. It's, uh, it, it appears to me to be obvious. The, the other point with these photographs is that this is not a photograph of a terribly intimate activity. We're not talking about you know, providing Max Mosley-style uh, video footage of S&M sex activities. We're talking about two fully clothed adults having a kiss against a door. Um, it might be described as passionate, but it's relatively tame. And it, it is, as I said, and, and for that reason, I don't think that this is no privacy concerns at all. I think there are privacy concerns. I just think the privacy concerns are outweighed by the public interest in proving the hypocritical nature of what has occurred. Um, because you need the evidence in order to, to prove that allegation. No, but don't normalise what happened in Max Mosley in that, in that judgment. Uh, that is at the upper upper end of uh, unacceptability it's not the, the sort of threshold of unacceptability it is gross that was a gross invasion of privacy yeah, well so was the cliff richard case you didn't think that was an invasion of privacy no. at all no wait what the cliff right i'm glad you brought cliff richard into this why now you brought it into this i'm going to continue Right, the, your your position on this strikes me as inconsistent with your position on uh, the Richard case. I mean, that was uh, uh, the the surveillance of the police going about their business. As I said at the time, and I'm happy to repeat, 
that struck me as having less of a privacy uh, problematic privacy dimension than the the Hancock uh, video, and yet you defended the uh, Richard uh, case. Um, so explain yourself. All right, Cliff Richard, you had pictures uh, of a person's private dwelling, it being raided, things being taken out of that private dwelling, creating an impression of wrongdoing, painting Cliff Richard in what the Americans would call a false light. And for those reasons, I thought that was a pretty gross violation of his privacy. Here we have an elected uh, minister, an elected member of parliament, serving as a minister um, on the public payroll, working in a public building, except not actually doing any work in the public building, it seems at the moment that he was caught on camera, but instead doing something that he ought not to have been doing in a public building for a whole range of reasons, including the hypocritical nature of what he was doing and the conflict that it has with his role. Um, I think that this is... So it's an activity that is fairly tame, uh, though it is, as I say, private in nature, taking place in public property, um, on the public, on public's time and the public's purse. Um, I, I, I don't see the inconsistency here at all. There's, I, I find it far more intrusive into a person's privacy to take detailed, high definition drone camera, helicopter camera footage of a person's private dwelling and what is going on there than grainy CCTV footage of what occurs in a public building. Well, for for me, the two cases speak to uh, activity that is uh, embarrassing and distressing to the individuals involved. Now, I I didn't think the Richard case was that uh, embarrassing, distressing on the images alone. There was nothing in the images that revealed uh, something to be embarrassed about. But of course, the context was the problem. The context, uh, as we said before, Richard was essentially a defamation case dressed up as privacy. But here, though, we also had, yes, it was, but we also, yes, it was, but we also here have uh, a problem with um, the the fact that this, this is embarrassing. The images of Hancock depict him in a sort of awkward grope with uh, an aide. Uh, they are sort of front and centre there. So, so the idea that there's, there's no sort of privacy dimension to this, I find inconsistent. I never said there was no privacy dimension to it. I've said repeatedly there is a privacy dimension to it. I just say yeah, that the um, balance, given the hypocritical nature of what has been going on, comes down in favour of publication in these circumstances well, yeah, the well, I, I, to provide the evidence that what happened actually happened. I think we would need to know more about how this information was acquired and perhaps from a sort of purist perspective, but perhaps I'm thinking too much here in terms of a sort of breach of confidence type claim rather than a misuse of private information claim. But I think there's a, there's, um, a necessity here for the justification argument to demonstrate the circumstances in which this information was obtained. I mean, that is one of the Murray factors, after all. Um, this, if, if this went to court, I would like to see a, a court probe more into that justification. 
I don't see a problem with the court finding in favour of Hancock, if he was a claimant, uh, on the basis of the information being acquired uh, in a way that is disproportionate to the, the limited public interest at stake. Is there any invoking of the Official Secrets Act? This is something that's been discussed quite a lot in the press um, and often, I think, in quite a misguided sense. Obviously, the content is not really problematic in this instance, but the fact that this footage is readily available to people outside of government is potentially worrying. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is uh, and, and again, there's an unanswered security service issue here about the idea of there being cameras in ministerial offices, which somehow newspapers have access to. Well, there's a difference there, isn't it, between the, the, uh, the having the cameras there and people getting access to them, um, who perhaps shouldn't have access to them. I don't have any great issue with having... CCTV in the Department of Health um, strikes me as, you know, and we've got CCTV cameras literally everywhere now. Um, We are the most surveilled population in Europe when it comes to CCTV. Um, But if you're going to have it anywhere, then surely we should have it where the CCTV can do its protective job looking after our elected officials. I mean, what if somebody came into Matt Hancock's office and instead of kissing him passionately, stabbed him with a paper knife? You'd want the CCTV footage to be able to track down the offender. I mean, it seems a basic security measure. Um, so I've, I've no problem with that. If the minister says, I don't want no cameras in my office, then that's one thing. But uh, I don't know why you would say it in quite such a colloquial way. Maybe you would. Um, it's, but but it's, it's, he clearly hasn't done. Um, uh, so... I, I don't know. There, Paul is absolutely right that there are questions to be answered here about how this information was obtained, um, which absolutely the court should look into. As Paul rightly says, it is one of the Murray factors to be looked into. And of course, the Murray factors are not um, uh, an exhaustive checklist of things that must be taken into account, uh, nor are they necessarily the factors there of equal weight. Um, uh, and uh, they go to the reasonable expectation of privacy, part one of the test, rather than the uh, balance with freedom of expression in part two. Anyway, so I, I think, from my perspective, unlikely to be dispositive of the case uh, once it goes to court, but absolutely it should come out because, apart from anything else, the public is entitled to know um, who has access to surveillance within uh, the Department of Health uh, and uh, how this information came out. Just to clarify, you said once this goes to court, um, there's no claim that's been brought yet. Uh, this is all hypothetical. Oh uh, yeah, I don't think there will be. I mean, this is, this, Matt Hancock wants to live this down as quickly as possible. Um, so I don't think this will ever see court. We're just, we're just speculating here on what could happen. Um, it's more university taught course problem question hypothetical territory than anything else. But it's absolutely. I believe there's been a freedom of information request as to whom leaked the video to The Sun. Whether that comes out with anything, only time will tell. But for now, I want to move on to the report that's just come out by the all-party parliamentary group on democracy and the constitution, who have criticised the police handling of the Kill the Bill protests in Bristol and the Sarah Everard demonstration earlier this year. 
finding that the policing of these two events breached fundamental rights to protest and involved unnecessary and disproportionate use of force. The report criticised the Met specifically for not engaging productively with Reclaim the Streets, the campaign group that wanted to organise the Sarah Everard event, but lost its High Court challenge to the Met decision to ban the event the day before the uh, demonstration was held, unofficially, of course, the result being that hundreds still gathered, but in a completely unorganised and uh, not socially distanced way. In light of the findings, the parliamentary group proposes that the new Police and Crimes Bill be amended to include a clear statutory duty for police to facilitate peaceful protest and the removal of new police powers to curb such peaceful protests. So we had an episode of the podcast um, on these protests just after uh, the incidents had occurred a couple of months ago. Um, we, we dug into the issues there in detail. Um, so uh, I'm going to keep this brief, but um, it, 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 it's, uh, it's interesting to read this report and to see that a number of the points that uh, we made on the podcast have been uh, uh, essentially upheld by the authors of the report. Um, I think the most um, important bit for me is the report's conclusion that both police forces started their policing of these protests from the basis that both protests were unlawful gatherings. Um, So their starting point was that these things were illegal. Um, And that informed all of the decision-making that uh, then followed. Now, we've seen the reports of disproportionate use of force. We've seen some footage, many of us, um, from the policing of those uh, protests, which which is uh, undeniably uh, distressing. Um, uh, But the the key here really is, uh, it seems to be, um, a fundamental misunderstanding um, of the right to protest. Uh, and the way that the COVID regulations, um, which didn't actually um, prohibit uh, gatherings for the purpose of protest, because they couldn't have uh, for incompatibility with Article 10, um, were read by the police to have had that effect. Um, This was in the face of quite a lot of legal advice that was flying around um, from legal commentators on social media, um, explaining that this was not the case. And there were also documents referred to um, by in in the report where uh, members of parliament, particularly Harriet Harman, the Labour MP, who's also a lawyer, um, had, had written to the Metropolitan Police explaining that it was not the intention of Parliament in passing the coronavirus regulations to prohibit protest even in um, what was at the time a tier four uh, area. Um, But nonetheless, both uh, the Metropolitan Police and Avon and Somerset Constabulary um, started from the basis that these were unlawful gatherings uh, and thus, um, I'm afraid, it looks like an attitude of pretty close to anything goes um, quickly uh, appeared. Um, the, the circumstances are, are obviously different because um, the Bristol protests did involve some violence on the part of some of the demonstrators. Um, 
and then it, um, it, it, there have there was testimony given to um, the uh, old party parliamentary group that um, those those on the ground in subsequent demonstrations in Bristol felt that there was a degree of revenge policing going on uh, in later days with the use of force. Um, the the uh, authors of the report are not. Uh, they say, in a position to draw any conclusions on those allegations, but they note them, uh, and they find the, the mere presence of that impression to be uh, disturbing. Tom, as you were talking, there was a breaking news notification on one of the two men who accosted Chris Whitty in a park in London last week. Apparently, he's just been charged with common assault, we were going to discuss today the potential defamation claim he could bring against politicians who've called him a thug. As a result, he's lost his job as a, an estate agent. Perhaps now is a good time to move on then with this uh, hypothetical exploration and, uh, and, and maybe address whether the common assault charge changes anything. Yeah, perhaps we should explain it is hypothetical because I understand, as I understand it, these comments were made in the house. Is that right? Uh, somewhere, some uh, by I believe the prime minister might have made comments in the house, um, but there are other politicians okay. who have in um, in interviews. Right. Uh, certainly, uh, Nadim Zahawi, the vaccines minister, uh, said the same thing. Um, used the word "thug" on uh, in a television yeah. news interview. Uh, and I believe a few others have as well. Okay. Four listeners in the House means that they were protected by parliamentary privilege. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this just, it struck me the other day, seeing these reports of various politicians of, of all um, political colours um, coming out and condemning the... Uh, uh, incident where Chris Whitty was approached by uh, a couple of young men who hassled him and said they were trying to get a selfie on the phone. He was clearly trying to get away from them. They, they came, you know, inappropriately close and they were manhandling him somewhat. Um, the, the footage, um, the, the video footage, which uh, they apparently took and then which has appeared online and gone viral, is. Um, no, of an incident that is clearly not pleasant. Um, but um, the response from politicians to me seemed extraordinary. Um, they were being, these young men were being described as thugs, that this was terrible, thuggish behaviour. Um, and let's be quite clear, um, Chris Whitty clearly was not injured. Uh, there was no violence. He wasn't verbally abused. Um, so I, I, I don't see how this is thuggish it may be um paul what would you call it that's a good word it may be loutish behavior i think it probably is loutish behavior it's unpleasant behavior in this age of coronavirus um you know it's not appropriate or acceptable to be getting so close to a person um, especially when they do not want you to be uh, that close to them um but to call someone a thug that is a very serious allegation to me. It does connote um, violence, uh, um, violent intent. Um, so I had been wondering whether there might be a basis 
upon which these uh, young men could claim uh, to have been defamed because of the over-the-top political reaction. Now, um, with the news that one of them has been charged with common assault, the picture slightly changes. If this uh, young man is convicted of common assault, um, then he will have been convicted of a violence offence, and that will provide, and would provide, hypothetically even, uh, a complete defence um, to uh, you know the, the possible defamation claim. Um, so you know it becomes interesting to see now what what happens. And on the basis of what I've seen on the footage, it looks to me like the the basic elements of a common assault claim are made out. But of course, the doctrine of common assault doesn't require very much um, in in order for there to be um, a, a conviction. All that is required, I mean, it's the elements of battery. So any unwanted touching with the intention to have done the touching um, is sufficient for uh, a conviction for battery, which is uh, um, part of a common assault conviction. So... I think it's entirely likely that, that, that this could result in conviction. Um, uh, but um, I did think the reaction from our politicians was uh, pretty extraordinary um, and in, in the circumstances. There are a lot of incidents uh, of greater violence meted out against people um, that are, have not been called out in these terms by our politicians. Yeah. Yeah, there is a gross disconnect here. And this is the same Boris Johnson who um, uh, was accused of dishonouring Joe Cox's memory. Uh, you will remember uh, very passionately called out uh, for that. So the sort of double standards that he implies, uh, those double st standards that he applies, um, are um, deeply, deeply troubling. Finally, today, I want to discuss Arlene Foster's damages award for the libel claim she brought against Dr. Christian Jessen, who's both best known for his role on embarrassing bodies. Uh, a couple of years ago, Dr. Jessen tweeted uh, allegations that Miss Foster was cheating on her husband. As a woman of very public Christian faith, this was held to be particularly damaging and distressing to her and her husband. However, the award that she's been given is uh, quite substantial. It, it sits at £120,000. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about this case. And I, I realise, actually, it's probably two or three weeks since we've had the judgment. Um, so it's, it's a little bit older than some of the other headlines we're dealing with. But I wanted to talk about it because of the size of the damages award here. Um, the allegation, there were a number of allegations made in a number of tweets, but the main one is uh, a, a, a completely false allegation um, that she'd uh, committed adultery. Um, it clearly had a significant emotional impact on uh, Arlene Foster, for the judge described the impact on her as uh, causing grave upset, distress, embarrassment, and humiliation. The judge in the case, this is in the High Court in Northern Ireland, uh, Mr. Justice McCallender, um, 
described this as an outrageously bad libel. Um, and then the award of £125,000, which is half the notional cap on damages, um, seems to me to be so high, I am... Um, I find it difficult to justify it. Um, if we're going to award damages that are 50% of the notional cap, the notional cap is presumably reserved for the worst possible libels. So for me, that is allegations of murder, perhaps genocide, um, mass, mass killings, mass rape, paedophilia, terrorism, right? Those sorts of orders of magnitude. So if we if we say, you know, calling somebody Hitler is the worst possible type of libel, um, you know, mass genocidal maniac, that gets £250,000. On the scale, where does an allegation of one incident of adultery lie? Um, it seems to me to be very, very high. Now, it is doctrinally permissible for the courts to consider si the size of awards in uh, personal injury cases um, as a comparator. I've always felt a little bit uneasy about that, but um, it is doctrinally acceptable. The courts have ruled that that is possible. And um, Mr. Justice McCallender knows all about personal injury judgments, for he was, when in practice, a personal injury uh, specialist um, before his appointment to the bench. Now, he uh, looks at some of the personal injury awards, and, and I, I find them particularly um, eye-catching. Um, no pun intended, but certainly there is a pun there, because um, one of the things he points out is that uh, the range of damages awards in personal injury for the total loss of one eye is between 80 and £140,000. So by comparison, calling uh, Arlene Foster uh, an adulterer is at the upper end of the scale for loss of an eye. Um, likewise, um, a complete loss of one hand, uh, eighty-five to 145000 loss of a foot, 150000 to 250000 So it's slightly less bad than losing a foot, but it's at the upper end of losing a hand or an eye. Um, these seem to me, I mean, it's, let's assume, I'm not entirely convinced the courts have got the ratio between hands, feet and eyes absolutely right there, by the way, but let's, um, let's assume, uh, arguendo that they have done, and th these awards in personal injury are appropriate. How can it be that calling a person an adulterer in a tweet that receives 517 retweets three and a half thousand likes and is reported over a two-week period and slightly beyond that two-week period in Northern Irish media um, can attract £125,000 worth of damages. I mean, let's think about the Max Mosley case in privacy, which, uh, as Paul rightly said earlier, is an absolutely exceptional case. You know, it's at the outer limits of bad conduct, the Max Mosley case, where um, uh, video footage and pictures of them engaging in S&M activities uh, were widely circulated uh, and went viral and certainly had more 
uh, views, has done any of this about Arlene Foster, he got £60,000 in damages, less than half of the damages award for Arlene Foster. Um, now, no doubt, the judge believed this was an outrageously bad libel, but I've got to query it. I, I, I think there's a good chance that uh, context here is relevant because we know that in Northern Ireland, um, religious affiliation is very important. It's a more overtly religious community than the more secular mainland Great Britain. Um, and that Arlene Foster's political position has been in no small part uh, very closely connected to her religious position because the Democratic Unionist Party is a religious party. Um, nonetheless, I, I find this staggering. This is the level of it's clearly defamatory. She clearly should win the case. She clearly should have her, vind her reputation vindicated. But by winning the case, she gets her reputation vindicated, which is a big deal. Um, 125,000 on top of that, plus costs? Really? Crikey. Yeah, and the, the, the other element that I found particularly striking in the judgment as well um, from uh, from Maca London was the, um, uh, the in relation to the, the allegation of homophobia uh, that the defendant had made towards the, the claimant because of her position on same-sex marriage. Now, the judge engaged in a sort of a, a rather convoluted, I thought, um, discussion in which he sought to affirm uh, her position on same-sex marriage and therefore sort of legitimate it in order to say that it couldn't be homophobic because it, it had a basis in, in as, a, as a traditional viewpoint. That struck me as... Uh, wildly inconsistent with uh, the Strasbourg position on this, seen in a case like Lingen's in Austria, that as a politician, you must expect higher levels of criticism uh, than uh, an individual would. Now, I think we can distinguish the allegation of adultery here, because where the allegation of adultery is without basis, of course, I have no difficulty in saying that that's actionable defamation. But here, to accuse someone of being homophobic because of their staunch position on uh, same-sex marriage struck me as uh, acceptable criticism. It struck me as a value judgment that was being made by the commentator on the politician. I didn't see that. I didn't see it as being defamatory, and I certainly didn't see it as being actionably defamatory. Um, so, if there's any element of the hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds that's meant to recognise that, I would have thought that was appealable. Was there anything in the judgment about? the defamation harming her political career was there any mention of that being part of the reasoning behind such a high damages award no i don't think so um not that i saw i mean i, I it's, it's a lengthy judgment and i can't pretend that i read it in absolute word for word detail but i did um cast my eyes over most of it um i don't think so to the credit of the judge and that that would not have been um relevant to determination of, of defamation because as paul rightly says you know, it is perfectly acceptable to criticize politicians for political um matters um it seems to me that the bulk of this 
is to do with the allegation of adultery. But um, I I, uh, I agree with Paul um, that if there is um, part of the award that is uh, geared towards damages for the uh, allegation of homophobia, that seems to me to be a value judgment on the position that Arlene Foster takes on same-sex marriage that she takes because she says it is uh, taken from um, religious teachings to which she adheres. Um, it, it, It is a judgment. A, it is a value judgment. B, it is less a judgment on the person as it is on the religious position uh, that she is espousing. Um, And it... But quite quite probably clumsily put, but um, uh, yeah, it, it seems to me to to meet that criteria as a value judgment. Okay, well, I think that wraps up everything that we wanted to discuss today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your insightful comments as always. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. I believe we will be taking a short break over the summer, but Media Law Podcast and uh, Media Law Podcast Newscast will be returning in September for the new academic year. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will keep you updated over the summer with all Media Law developments. Thank you very much. Bye.